Hey, everybody. What a beautiful morning already. Uh, stirring music and lovely uh, meditation. And yeah, it's my, my pleasure to be here. It's good to see all of you. It's good to be back. I have been gone uh, various places, which I'll, <laughs> I'll describe. Um, yeah, and what a fitting uh, weaving of things. Uh, I want to begin by giving you a sense of the terrain I, wanna, I want you to reflect on. And, and I want to invite you to think a bit about the word ancestor this morning. Like, even to think, who are my own ancestors? And <clears throat> how much do I know about them? And how much influence or sway or um, uh, unknown and hidden power might be coursing through my own veins that come from my own history, my own an ancestry? So I want you to be thinking a bit about that, but I want you to kind of hold the question of your own um, future ancestry. In other words, what does it mean to become an ancestor? That's the question I'm trying to ask this morning. What does it mean to become an ancestor? How does one become an ancestor? And, and I don't mean by virtue of the fact that you're alive and will die, <laughs> because ancestor is really an archetype. It's a pattern. It's, um, it's something we can grow into or not, is my, my sense of, of the word. And so that's kind of in the background of what I want to talk about today. And I want to read a poem. I want to read a long poem by David White, which we'll get to in a minute. It's in your, it's in your bulletin. And I thought, uh, let's, let's do it justice and have the entire thing. And I'm giving it to you as a free gift this morning. You're welcome. And I want to inv invite you to take it with you, take this bulletin with you, because Poems are like mini-myths or like songs, and they, they are meant to work on us. When someone asks, what's the meaning of, the po of a poem, I think it's the wrong question. <laughs> it's more like the meaning is in, is in its effect, and it has an effect over time. A good poem will have an effect over time, just like a good song will have an effect over time, and like Sinead O'Connor's songs. I dare you to listen to one on the way home. Okay, and let it affect you. Let it let it work on you. And that's what I'm I'm suggesting this this poem uh, might be capable of. So I want to start off by talking a bit about my own ancestry, which I don't know that much about. I I did come from a a a, a family of storytellers, otherwise known as preachers, <laughs> but not a lot of personal stories about family history. I don't know if it was something about a certain generation, but there wasn't a lot of family stories. In fact, on my mother's side, who came from Ireland, almost nothing. My aunt is finally starting to say a few things, so she's airing the dirty laundry, telling my sister, so things are getting out. And on my dad's side, also Irish, a few here and there, those that would fit into a sermon, but not a lot of family stories. So in some ways, I don't know all that much, but I know a little bit. And the first thing I want to tell you is that my great-grandfather immigrated here from Ireland, from Northern Ireland. And uh, he came here after the potato famine because it was really hard to be Irish and in Ireland. It was a very challenging time. And like many, like many people in the 19th and 20th century, America was like a city on a hill and was like a beacon and uh, a certain call 
a certain light shone out into the world that was attractive to people who were hurting and suffering and couldn't make ends meet. So that was my great-grandfather. He moved here. He immigrated here. He ended up in Detroit, of all places. And the story is a bit mysterious, but Detroit did not go so well for my family. In fact, almost as soon as he arrived, his wife, so my great-grandmother, got cancer and died. And one of their sons was hit by a train in Detroit and was killed. And my my great-grandfather decided to move the family back to Ireland. So, you know, things are bad (laughs) if you have to go back to Ireland. And so that's what happened. My grandpa was born here and moved back to Ireland when he was three, which matters because uh, in in a few years, he'll want to move the family back to America, which was made possible by his American passport. So back to Ireland, they went as a family and tried to make a life back there. And I don't really know that much about it. I do know eventually my grandfather was converted to uh, become a Methodist. I don't know from what, but I think from another Christian (laughs) denomination. But he became a Methodist. And um, this was a big deal. Now, now Northern Ireland is is a a different country, in case you don't know, from from Southern Ireland, from Ireland proper. And um, I come from Protestant, uh, Protestant family. And, and, Northern Ireland still to this day is a pretty religious place. In fact, it's, it's kind of shocking if you go there. You'll see in the summertime big tent revivals where, they're, you know, where people are, I don't know, what, giving up the drink and returning to, to Jesus and um, getting saved and a lot of talk about getting saved and going to heaven and things like this. And that was uh, the Protestant world that my grandpa was a part of. And he was an itinerant minister and he went around on a, on a motorcycle from sort of place to place, which is... We, we would call that cool. Uh, that's, that's definitely cool. Um, and that was his life, and, and he, he really gave his life to, to being a minister, ministering to people, meeting with people, and he did it in this kind of like clever, sing-songy, bard-like, leprechaun way. It was sort of my, my grandpa's vibe. In fact, I met somebody just a couple days ago. I did a wedding. And um, she said, you know, I met, I met your dad once at the hospital, and we started talking, and, and I realized she wasn't talking about my dad. I was like, I think you met my grandpa at the hospital. I, she's like, I, I don't know. I was like, did he have an Irish accent? She said, yes. And I said, that was my grandpa. So he used to visit people in the hospital. He loved visiting people. And here was this version of a visit. He would say a few obscure poems that no one would hear of, and then, and then give long, extended uh, um, lines from hymns. Like, you know how hymns have 75 verses? that you never get around to singing, and some of them are, like, theologically complicated. And that, he knew them all, and he would just, like, and that would be the visit. You know what you need? And he would just, like, go into this. But I think it was the Irish accent. He could just get away with anything. People say, oh, I was so moved, you know. <laughs> and that's what he loved to do. And, um, and so my, and my dad became a minister as well. And so the, my grandpa moved the family to, to the States, to New Jersey. They came to Ellis Island, did the whole immigrant thing, and... Um, when my dad was 14. So my dad moved here to the States when he was 14 and pretty quickly found his way into the family business of preaching. And um, so I grew up in this kind of environment where ministry was sort of at the center. But Ireland held a certain kind of sway over my family. Like, I don't think my dad ever felt at home in the States. And I mean, how can you? 
really, when you're born somewhere else. He had a thick Irish accent, which, of course, people would make comments about. It's like, I, I was born in Virginia, and so when I moved here to, to Michigan, when I was in the sixth grade, first of all, teachers thought I was polite. I was not, but because I said, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, I, I thought, oh, what a polite little boy, and um, it turns out I was a little devil but I sounded polite, but I, I quickly learned that this is not the kind of attention you want, so there went my Virginia Hills accent, and that's what happened to my dad, too. People would make comments about his accent while he was preaching, and he would sort of think, well, that's not the point of my sermon, you know, listen to the words, you know, not the accent, so he just dropped it over the course of time. He had it when I was really little, an infant, but went away after that, except when he was on the phone to his relatives. So anyway, um, Ireland held a certain kind of pull, and so I've been going there many times. My first visit was when I was an infant. I don't remember it, and my, my parents said that they, um, I had to sleep in a suitcase because uh, there was no crib or whatever, and they had to pull it away from the window because this was the time when the troubles in Northern Ireland were the worst. So this is bombings, and uh, you know, like my uncle's a grocery store was bombed by the IRA. So um, it was a scary time to visit. Uh, anyway, so they would pull, pull the, the suitcase away from the window in case there was uh, like a, a car bomb or something. That was my very first visit. And then over the course of time, just many visits, whenever we could afford it as a family, we, we would go over there. And, and amazingly, um, I also have been able to take my kids over there. So I, um, I don't I don't remember how many times we've been, but a few times just to visit family. And so it's also sort of woven into my, my kids' lives, this place of ancestry. And, um, and then that's just the story of the family. I don't want to say much, much more about that. But then there's the landscape itself. And I don't know what your feeling is, but my feeling is that the soul is shaped in a certain way. And... and it resonates with certain kinds of landscapes. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to a place where you felt alive in a certain sense. And I mean the landscape itself gave you a certain feeling, a certain sense. Sometimes even like, you could say a sense of homecoming or a sense of home, a sense of relationship. That's how Ireland feels to, feels to me, especially the northern coast. I don't know if you've ever been to Ireland or... Um, seen the coastline, but it's a wild, kind of untamed place. It's basically the opposite of a beach in Florida. <laughs> it's, it's rocky and full of tidal pools and kelp, and the water is dark, and one second it's raining, and the next second, but only for a second, the sun is shining, and, and it's windy, and um, it's a wild landscape, and so there's something about the place, too. And when I start thinking about ancestry, not only do we have stories, do you and I have stories? Like, I just gave you a tiny taste, but what about all those hopes, dreams, beliefs, failures, successes of our own ancestors? And also, the landscapes that shape their sense of the world, their way of relating to the world, their sensibilities of the world, what they love and don't love, and the, the, the contours of a landscape in some ways shape the contours of the soul and, or of the heart. And that's, that's somewhere in our past, you know. And somehow we carry that. And anyway, so being in Ireland has that kind of feeling to me, like um, a, a certain power. 
is present. A certain wildness, that's actually the way that I would put it. That's what awakens for me on the coast. Um, so my daughter is 22 years old. I just had a birthday, so I know I'm 47, but in a, in a few months, I'll forget that number. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, for some reason, I went through a whole like six-year period when I didn't know what age I was. It was like in the 30s. Anyway, I don't know if that happens to you, but um, anyway, she's 22, and uh, she got engaged this year and decided she wanted to get married on the northern coast of Ireland and decided to elope, which we thought, this is fantastic, great, go and do it. And she said, you're invited, <laughs> which also means you pay for it. So <laughs> yeah, just like beautifully and amazingly, she cooked up this plan to get married in some in some of our favorite places on the coast, in this place called Dunluce Castle, and there's another place called Giant's Causeway. Um, she just wanted a small wedding, so my wife and I, my other kids were there, and then one of my wife's brother brothers and, and his wife was also there. So that was it, just a few of us in a field. Uh, we rented a field, rented. We, a farmer let, we paid a farmer a few pounds to stand in his field overlooking this castle and um, you know, gave us a little shot of whiskey and before he, you know, Great, glad you're here. Here's a little shot of whiskey and went out and had a ceremony. It was um, maybe what I want to say about it is that um, I don't know how your life has gone, but I think the most meaningful and important um, moments in my life, I didn't cook up or dream up and I couldn't have planned. Like in a billion years, I could not have planned that or orchestrated that. I um, I heard the story of... Um, uh, about Martha Stewart once. I love Martha Stewart, by the way. Big fan. And, uh, and anyway, when her daughter was born, she planted two rows of these fruit trees. I think they're fruit trees. or some kind of uh, tree that, that blossoms because she thought, I'm going to make the aisle that my daughter is going to walk down. And you know what her daughter did? I'm not walking down that aisle. <laughs> and, did, and did her own thing. It's like David White has that line, um, the life you can plan is too small for you to live. And that's how I feel, like, I'd, life is mysterious, and I couldn't have planned this, but it was a gift. It's like, how do we end up, like, full circle in a way, back on this island, and with my own daughter, and, and my new son-in-law? It's like, you can't, you can't dream up such things, and, um, and they got married in such a mysterious place, too, along the very ocean, you know, that my... Uh, grandpa and great-grandpa and uh, grandma and grandpa uh, set sail on, you know, left the harbor in Belfast where the Titanic was pushed out from. I went to the Titanic Museum, but too, I, I highly recommend it. it's in Belfast. It's, um, I mean, you already know the end of the story, <laughs> but it's still profound. It's profound how much opulence and luxury and detail went into this particular ship and how much the entire Belfast economy was around shipbuilding, you know. Um, and that's where my dad grew up. So anyway, it's, uh, I don't know, how did I end up uh, back on this, this, this ocean, you know, for the next generation? So here's, here's my sense um, around the questions of ancestry. First, I want to describe like a shift. I, that I feel inside, and it's almost impossible for me to put into words. And as I'm putting it into words, it sounds almost silly in a way. 
But, and it sounds a bit narcissistic now that I think about it, but so, here's what's shifting. My life doesn't feel like it's about me anymore. And you could say, well, was your life all about you before? And I'd say, well, kind of. <laughs> kind of was. Um, and, like, you know, like if you're at a party, I don't go to that many parties. I don't like them all that much. But when you do go, what's the first question? The first question is, what do you do, you know? And that's what I mean. Like, what am I doing? What am I up to? What's my career and the things that I'm putting out into the world and making and whatever? And there's something about the last couple of years, and especially this wedding and this whole surprise um, return to Ireland that was like, oh, my life is not about me anymore. Like, oh, I see. It's like, um, it's not even, a, it, it, the only image that I, that's come to me is like, oh, I can feel my own kids. It's like their sun, so to speak, is rising still, and mine's not. <laughs> and I think that's, yeah, that's good. That's, that's not a bad thing. It's just the way life is. And, and it pokes around in the question of, of am I going to grow into a kind of ancestor? And what does that mean? What's that mean? And, okay, so here's the first image that comes to me around ancestry. And it, and it has to do with a kind of dark and lovely image, and, and that is the image of compost. Like, I would like my life to be like a compost pile. Like, I'm going to die, and you're going to die, in case this is your first time here, and news to you, you're going to die as well. <laughs> but also, how you live your life, how you're living your life right now affects the, the future. You know that in a kind of like an obvious way, but it's also very mysterious what I'm saying. And it's possible that your life can feed the future. And maybe you don't even recognize that when you're young because your sun is still rising. But as the sun starts to descend, you're like, okay, yeah, um, I'm leaving a wake here or I'm leaving a pile. Now, this is about to get even more creepy because, believe it or not, yesterday I heard this thing on the radio, which was the greatest ever, that somebody had come up with, of course, in the state of Washington, near Seattle, a way of composting human bodies. You've been... Okay. So you can... Offer up your body to these hive-like, um, octagonal-shaped um, units of which then they put in straw and whatever else, everything that you need to make compost. And in as little as six to nine months, you come out as a three-by-three three cube of dirt. Now that, my friends, is amazing, first of all. Um, now, I, I <laughs> this could be a whole detour. But I'm, mo I'm mostly interested in the image of compost. Like, yes, not only literally is that interesting to me, I think, yeah, that's useful. And I, I remember when my, when my grandma died, a little Irish woman um, who weighed like 93 pounds. And I, at her funeral, it was the first time I ever saw actually where they put bodies these days in a, basically a concrete vault. They pump the body full of, full of, uh, embalming fluid and lower it in a concrete vault. And, okay, I'm not here to judge. I don't know what, I have no idea what I'm going to do, you know, but it's like something is not quite right about that. It's like not only do we live our life kind of isolated from the world and from nature, we do that in death, 
you know, we'll just build this vault. And I know there are rules and laws and all that kind of stuff. And um, I just love the idea of, you know, coming back as a pile of compost that can help grow some roses. You know, it's like when I was a kid, no, I really am going on. I used to fantasize about the sky burial. I always wanted to be buried like, uh, like a sky burial where the birds come and pluck you and take you off. And I realize this is getting weirder. <laughs> it's like that Counting Crows song. Uh, when, I think of, when I think of heaven, deliver me in a black wing bird. I think of dying down into a sea of pens and feathers and all of the instruments of faith and sex and God in the belly of a black winged bird. That's the line, yeah. <laughs> Just to bring up the 90s, you know. Yeah, that's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful sentiment. And, and it's what I mean about living your life as compost, you know, like giving yourself away in a certain extent. And okay. Um, so we got back from Ireland, and then my wife was like, have you ever read the poem, um, what's it called, Coleman's Bed? Yeah, Coleman's Bed by David White. And I said, no, I don't think so, or maybe I have, but I, I don't remember it. And, sh and she, has, she started reading it to me, and she said, this would be good for see free chat someday. I was like, okay. Um, so I want to read the poem, and I'm going to read the entire thing. I'm just going to read it paragraph by paragraph. I'll make a few comments, but I want the poem to do its own work own, uh, be an ingredient in your own composting, okay? Here's what he says. Make a nesting now, make a nesting now, a place to which birds can come. Think of Kevin's prayerful palm holding the blackbird's egg and be the one looking out from this place who warms interior forms into light. Feel the way the cliff at your back gives shelter to your outward view and then bring in from those horizons all the discordant elements that seek a home. This is the opening image. It's an image of nesting. And the first thing I want to just put as a question, what is the relationship between becoming an ancestor and nesting here, making a home in a way, gathering, no longer going out. The image is of St. Kevin. Yes, there's a St. Kevin. I don't know why that makes me laugh. Only the Irish would come up with St. Kevin. Um, but anyway, St. Kevin, he was like the St. Francis of Ireland, and, and, and he lived in a cave, and, and he, w he loved animals so much that a blackbird came by legend, and, and he had held out his hand and was still enough, and the bird made a nest, and and laid an egg in his, in his hand. And, and that's, that's the image that David White is playing with here. And He's saying there's a time for this when you, when you stand in the mouth of the cave and you, you're just holding out your hand. It's like your life itself is a kind of nest. And it's bringing in the discordant elements, the elements that have been scattered to the winds. You know? And that's actually what early life is like, a going out, a scattering. Even the dismantling. Think how much in our culture is about dismantling forms and systems and structures and, and tear everything down. And, and David White is reminding us of, this, of, the, of the opposite image, which is a collecting up, a nesting, a returning, like pulling in. 
being the kind of place where a blackbird would want to come and say, yeah, this seems like a good place to rest for a while. So I think he's saying with this image that there's a certain kind of stance you can take in the world, a kind of nesting stance that pulls in. Here's the second paragraph. Be taught now, be taught now, among the trees and rocks, how the discarded is woven into shelter, how the discarded is woven into shelter. Learn the way things hidden and unspoken slowly proclaim their voice in the world. Find that far inward symmetry to all outward appearances. Apprentice yourself to yourself. Begin to welcome back all you sent away. Begin to welcome back all you sent away. Be a new enunciation. Make yourself a door through which to be hospitable, even to the stranger in you. I think so much of early life, so much of my early life was about finding my voice. You know the word um, vox in Latin means voice? It's where we get words like vocation. So very important part of first half of life dealings. What's your voice in the world and your way of being really more than that? your contribution, and not to minimize that, but to say, yeah, there's a time and a place for that, but do you feel how the poem is describing a kind of shift? Well, to what? Um, what does he say? Um, to learn the way things hidden and unspoken slowly proclaim their voice in the world. So it's like your voice is suddenly more quiet and you start to hear what's been um, unheard for a while and not proclaimed and not shouted from the rooftops, but what's subtle and quiet. So like the voices that have been drowned out or the voices of hidden things. And I think you have to be still enough to hear it. And so this also requires a kind of stance, a kind of inner stance, and a relationship to homecoming is what I would say. And here, we welcome home all that we sent away. See, in the first paragraph, there's a kind of stance of Kevin in the, in the doorway of the cave and welcoming in, and the birds are welcome, and all the discordant parts, and he's saying that's also what's going on on the inside. Like you sent away parts of yourself, and for good reason, because you have to, whatever, grow up and make a contribution and do things in life and be serious. And, and part of that means you, you tuck away parts of yourself that maybe don't fit. Or the social world in which you were raised, certain things are allowed and certain things are not allowed. And so that stuff goes into the basement of the psyche. And he's saying... Yeah, but in the second half or third half of life, it's important to welcome home these parts. Yeah, to pull your own discordant parts back up again. Say, yep, I pull that back in. Have you ever seen, have you ever really looked carefully at a bird's nest and seen the way in which they will take what's discarded and wrap it into the, um, into the nest? Like I've seen little bits of... Um, 
of, uh, you know those strings that people tie balloons onto? I thought, oh, this is, this is like so amazing that, you know, some kid probably lost that balloon, you know, and a bird just picks, picks up what's left over and weaves it in, and, and he's saying, you can do that on the inside. That's part of the inner journey here. Here's the next paragraph. See with every turning day how each season makes a child of you again. See with every turning day how each season makes a child of you again. Wants you to become a seeker after rainfall and bird song. Watch now how it weathers you to a testing in the tried and true. Admonishes you with each falling leaf to be courageous, to be something that has come through, to be the last thing you want to see before you leave the world. He's speaking of a return to innocence, really. You know, Jesus has that great line that no one takes seriously. He says, unless you change, you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the same sentiment here. Like, there is a returning, or it's like the beginner's mind thing where the wise person is the child, the wise person is the beginner, and, and what calls to you? Well, suddenly, like, birdsong and rain, like, you let yourself be allured by the world again like a child, and you wander out in a rainstorm. Yeah, that's possible. And you let the world teach you, like... I think partly what he's saying is you get to a certain point on your way to becoming an ancestor and you don't need any more gurus. You don't need any more teachers. You don't need any more books, except my next one. You should buy that. But beyond that, you don't need, you don't need any. The world, you can now hear the world again and the landscape and the bird song, and it's your teacher. And it teaches you how to die is what he's saying which is the same way of saying it, it teaches you how to live. You know that right before the leaf, you know, releases, it like reaches its full magnificence in the fall? Like think of a maple leaf. Like there it is turning into its full magnificence of glory and then, it, then, it's, then it's gone. And he's saying, yeah, that's, that's the kind of life um, I'm inviting you to live into. That's what he's saying. Above all, Next paragraph, above all, be alone with it all, a hiving off, a corner of silence amidst the noise, refuse to talk. God, wouldn't that be amazing? Sorry, I'm, I'm getting this. Refuse to talk, even to yourself, and stay in this place until the current of the story is strong enough to float you out. Like, what, what kind of way of being is this describing? It's not about striving or effort, really, anymore. It's about allowing, and it requires a certain amount of silence. There's nothing more to talk about. You don't have to explain yourself to anyone anymore. You don't even have to explain yourself to yourself. And just let, let yourself... I, I used to have bees, and I, used to, I was not a very good beekeeper. They pretty much died every year, <laughs> sadly. But I'd go out in there in the winter and check on them. And here's how you check on them. You go out there and you put your ear to it and you knock on it. And if it goes, then they're still there. 
And what are they doing in there? It's a hiving off. There's like a silence. There's a secrecy happening in there. And he's saying that's, that's like a, a way of being in the world that's available to you. And that grows with age and time. Here's the final paragraph. Ghost then, just a strange phrase, ghost then, to where others in this place have come before, under the hazel, by the ruined chapel, below the cave where Coleman slept, this is another saint, become the source that makes the river flow. And then the sea beyond. So in the previous paragraph, just a quick pause, he's saying, hang out there for a while till the river kicks you out. <laughs> it's like, have you ever watched something stuck in an eddy? Like, uh, like a leaf in an eddy or something. It's just going around and around and around. And it seems like it could be there forever. And when does it decide to go? It doesn't decide when to go. All of a sudden, the current shifts in a way and, and the leaf is kicked out. And he's saying, yeah, be patient like that. Be silent. Be quiet, and then the river will kick you out. But that's not it. Not only the will the river kick you out, he's saying, then become the river itself. Become the source that makes the river flow and the sea beyond. Live in this place as you were meant to, and then, surprised by your abilities, become the ancestor of it all. The quiet robust, and blessed saint that your future happiness will always remember. In some ways, he's playing with the image of pilgrimage, which is something that's important to me, and I've been taking leading pilgrimages to Israel ever since I was a student there. And why do we visit places? Well, in some ways, it's to be in the place and to let the place affect us, and and to wonder about, well, what is the relationship between the saint or the person and the place? Like, how did the landscape shape that particular person? And that's part of what a pilgrimage is. And you're letting yourself be affected. And, and he's describing something like that. It's like ghost then to where others in this place have come before. Like visiting Ireland for me or going back to your old neighborhood, even in your imagination, and moving around in there and feeling into that place. And, and his invitation here, I think, is to grow in to the ancestor. It, in other words, it just doesn't happen automatically, but requires you to live in a certain way. I heard this interview with Heschel once. Um, well, I, I read the interview. I didn't hear it. Um, but it was with a, 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 a priest, like a, a Catholic priest. And the Catholic priest was kind of like concerned in a way that Heschel di didn't really have much to say about the afterlife. Because I don't know if you know, Judaism isn't really all that interested in the afterlife. Their basic approach is, we'll see. Okay, That's my summary of <laughs> Jewish literature. And, and on the other hand, um, Christianity is, has a kind of obsession with it. So anyway, the priest was interviewing Heschel, and this is Abraham Joshua Heschel, and, and Heschel said that um, when asked about the afterlife, he said, well, the important question to me 
is are you living a life that's worthy of being remembered in the future? I thought, yeah, that's, that's closer to, I think, what David White is trying to say here. And what I'm trying to say about becoming compost, like how you live your life now in the fullness of the season that you're in is a kind of gift to the future, can be a kind of gift to the future. Surprised by your abilities, become the ancestor of it all. Not just of your particular bloodlines, but of it all, of the place that you inhabit, like the actual physical place that you're living now. You have an opportunity to be an ancestor in a way. The robust and blessed saint that your future happiness will always remember. At a certain point, our wanderings cease. We know that. Like, at a certain point, our wanderings cease, and, and we're called to live fully in the place that we're, we're inhabiting. Like, there's no more roaming. <laughs> You're just inhabiting the life that's yours to inhabit. And maybe this is as close as to a definition of soul as we can get to, like soul as a, as a way of being and as a way of being in a particular place. And that way of being in a particular place affects the place. It's a give and take. You're affected by the world and you affect the world. And I think an ancestor is someone who is coming into a conscious relationship with that dynamic. I'm feeding the world and I'm being fed by the world. I'm feeding the world and I'm being fed by the world. It's like the salmon, you know, just to go back to death just for fun, you know. The, you know, the salmon, talk about the, uh, the, the sacred image of Ireland, the sacred animal of Ireland is really the salmon. And the salmon is what makes Ireland green. You know, you think it's the rain, but it's the salmon. You know, it's the, it's the way in which their relationship with the life-death life cycle of giving themselves away, of, of becoming compost, same with the, the Pacific Northwest. Its fertility is, you know, because of this sacred creature. Anyway, David White is saying, you become that. You become that kind of reciprocal um, soul or heart in the world as, as the sun of your life fades, as you give yourself away. And you become the saint. You don't need any more saints. You know, plus, I don't know if you pay attention to Catholic theology. I, I don't pay attention to that, but it's kind of hard to become a saint. You have to have like three miracles and you have to be approved by this. And okay, forget about all that. You just live your life and give yourself away as a kind of composting heap to the, to the next generation. And then you're the ancestor that your future happiness will always remember. Thanks for listening.